0: You know, it's kind of uh, strange sometimes, things that come to your mind when you begin working on a sermon. As I was preparing for this uh, sermon this morning, I found my mind drifting back to memories of, I think, when I was about six years old or so. It was in the early 1960s, when our family would gather together one evening each year to watch, of all things, The Wizard of Oz on TV Now, of course, in those days, because there was no way to record or rent this kind of stuff on video or on DVD, if there was something you wanted to see, you had to watch the TV listings carefully, or you would simply miss it. And it might be a very long time before whatever it was you wanted to see would come around again, and you would have the opportunity. Well, for whatever reason, about the same time every year, The Wizard of Oz would come on television, on Channel 4. This, by the way, was one of those rare occasions that our television set ever strayed from Channel 2, which was just the way it was. I'm not exactly sure what that was all about, but there's kind of this channel loyalty that developed. But anyway, uh, for several years, watching this became kind of an annual family event. Now, one of the reasons why this was such a big deal was that this was also the time when color television was still very new. And so, because the Wizard of Oz transitions from Dorothy's home in Kansas, which is filmed in black and white at the first part of the movie, to the land of Oz, where everything is in vibrant color, getting to watch this on a color TV was a really big deal. This was really high-tech stuff at that time. In fact, because all we had was a black and white TV, for the first year or so, we had to go to a friend's house for this event. It just wasn't the same if you didn't get to watch it in color. But, you know, aside from all of that, which is probably the reason why I remember it at all that we did this, the reason I think I found myself thinking about all this stuff again this week has to do with this theme that's kind of woven all through the storyline. From Dorothy, who is picked up and literally dropped into a strange and unfamiliar place, where she is hit by the realization that uh, she's not in Kansas anymore, to all of the roads and undertakings that she pursues, hoping that they will somehow qualify her for or provide what she needs to get back home again. The theme of the longing that spurs her on is summed up in this phrase that you find her finally repeating towards the end of the movie over and over again. There is no place like home. There is no place like home. And interestingly enough, it's when she finally realizes the power of focusing on this metaphor and just how powerful that can really be for her. With A little help from some magic shoes, of course. She discovers that she has finally found her way. And you know, however goofy the movie itself might be, what it does manage to do is to tap into something that uh, is very real for all of us a longing that we experience to be in a place that we call home, where we feel at home, to feel like we're a part of family. The truth is, there really is no place like home. And that's an idea that's not only central to the Wizard of Oz, but one that is woven all through the fabric of scripture, where we find stories of all kinds of people, who are trying to somehow qualify for or find the path that leads them back to what they're looking for. And in the process, they wind up pursuing lots of different paths and lots of different roads, lots of different ways. And they often lose their way in the process until they finally come to the realization that by grace, God has already welcomed them into his family. And that changes everything. It's because we live in a world that often does offer us lots of other ways, themes, metaphors, paths to pursue, all of which promise to satisfy this longing that we experience. That remembering that it's the experience of being family together that defines us or that guides our paths can also make a huge difference for us. It's when we don't remember this or when this gets a little out of focus that we can wind up with something that looks something like this. I have a short video clip we just want to share with you. The Dishes? We've got a dishwasher. I just like doing them because it makes me feel useful. But this is a great kitchen. It's got everything in it. Microwave, blender, salad shooter, Mr. Coffee. Hang on just a minute. Hello? Just kidding. Come on. Room's great too. Everything's on remote control. Even the remote has a remote. This is the rec room. That's Mom. Crystal, what are you doing, honey? Just showing some people around, Mom. That's good, honey. Mom's cool. She doesn't care what I do. Anyway, like I said, it's a great house, but it's not a home. It's a great house, but it's not a home. You know, clearly, in the case of this family, whatever dream they were pursuing in building their house you can't help but wonder what might have happened had the metaphor that guided them first been building their home. Now, it's true, if you don't get this right, that doesn't mean that things won't happen. Things will happen. There were, after all, a lot of impressive things in that house that uh, you could see and enjoy. It's great workmanship. And, to tell you the truth, some things might look pretty much the same either way. But it is, rather, a matter of what you miss along the way and perhaps what you're missing when you finally get there. This, of course, is part of what Jesus was trying to get those in his day who were so proud of the impressive temple they had built to see when he suggested that what defined the temple was not this beautiful building, but God's presence and who was in the temple. In fact, Jesus was right there, God in human flesh before their eyes, And not only could they not see it, they at that point were already beginning to plan to destroy it, which is what he was talking about when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. And later on, he told his disciples that whenever two or three were gathered together, that's where God, that's where the real temple would be. You see, the metaphor or the mental picture that tells us who we are and guides us into where we are going does make a huge, huge difference. Many of you will remember uh, this picture on the easel from our series on a church like that. That's exactly two years ago this month that we talked about this. And you'll remember that we took uh, a week each to talk about all these various pieces of this puzzle that came together to form this picture of a church like that. We talked about scripture and ministry and worship and good news, and love, and looking outside of ourselves, and family, all of these pieces who come together to form a picture. And if you look real closely in that picture, you may very well see yourself there. It's a great picture that was taken of the congregation, and which looks so much better now that the uh, Parker family so generously framed it for us. It hangs on the wall in the pastor study. We look at it every week when we walk in to meet together. All of those pieces connected together at the one central piece in the puzzle of love, the realization of grace. And you might also remember that as we talked about this a couple years ago, Pastor Chris pointed out to us and reminded us that the piece in this picture that supplies the best overall guiding metaphor for who we really are together for a church like that is family. And as a staff, we have been very intentional about keeping that as the central guiding theme of our church and of our ministry and of our lives ever since that time. And I think it's made a difference. It's not to say we always get it right and that we still don't have lots of room to grow, but rather that we are clear about what guides us. We're clear about where we want to go and the direction we're moving. And so what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to return to that part of the puzzle, that one piece, and take a long, loving look at exactly what it means to be together as family. And for that to be the metaphor that most clearly defines who we really are and our lives together and what it means to connect with people in the world around us. And if that sounds familiar to you, it parallels exactly the mission statement that you see printed on your bulletin. But it would not be quite correct to say that we're going back to look at this piece because, in fact, we are actually going forward. We didn't spend the last five weeks talking about what it means to walk across the room so we could now change the subject and talk about something else for a while. But rather to think carefully about just exactly what it is when we walk across the room And when we make connections with people, that we are inviting them into. What is it that we're inviting them to be a part of? How are we connecting with them? In fact, surprisingly enough, the passage that's at the heart of the Walk Across the Room series, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18, has embedded right in the middle of it something pretty significant to say about family. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to go with me there to that passage again. The Great Commission passage. Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one in front of you in the pew. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that one with you when you leave today. We want to be sure that you have a copy. Or if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen too. I think we'll have the words up there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 28 beginning with verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, before we go any farther, I just want to remind you about something you've already heard. If you were here just a couple of weeks ago, the week before we went to Pine Springs Ranch, you'll remember that Pastor Dan pointed out a couple things about this passage that are really important and are worth going back and remembering together just one more time. The first thing he reminded us about is that this word go here is not in the imperative form, as if it were a command. The word go here is in a present continuous tense, which means if you were to read this more accurately so that it says what it's really trying to convey, It's not go as if you're being sent off somewhere, but rather as you continue on the way you have been going. As you continue on the way that you have been going. And that second, as they continued on the way that they had been going, they were to make disciples. Make disciples. And a disciple was simply someone who followed their teacher or their mentor, not only by listening to what they said, but they actually followed them around and stayed with them and patterned their lives after them. And you might remember the great illustration that Pastor Dan used of his girls skiing down the slope behind the instructor. Disciples patterning their lives after their master, after the teacher. That's what the disciples had been doing, and now Jesus invites them to invite others in joining them or inviting them to come and join them in patterning their lives after his life. And then third, the thing that Pastor Dan reminded us about, was that the invitation includes everybody. Not just the people like us, but everybody. But because it doesn't stop there, this morning what I'd like to do is to continue on to the rest of verse 19. And notice what happens as we continue to reflect on this Great Commission passage. And listen to what Jesus has to say. So after Jesus says this in the first part of verse 19, as you continue on the journey you have begun, go and invite everyone to come and follow me as well. He goes on to say in the second part of the verse, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them. What does he mean? when he tells them to go and baptize them. Are we talking about that really rich, symbolic act that we participate in when we make our decision to follow Jesus and to respond to his love and commit the rest of our lives? Yes, that is certainly included in what Jesus is saying here. There's no question. That's a very rich time in our lives. He's inviting people to experience that. But the imagery and meaning of what Jesus is saying goes much farther than the ceremony. Now, as good Adventists, we already know that the root meaning behind the word baptize is what? It's to immerse. It's to immerse. It's if you're taking a piece of cloth and you were submerging it into a vat of dye until every thread of that piece of cloth is changed to the new color of the dye. That was baptizing that piece of cloth. That was taking that piece of cloth and immersing it in the dye so it could be changed. That's the mental image that's in people's minds when they hear the word baptism, which, of course, is one of the reasons that we practice baptism by immersion rather than sprinkling or pouring or one of those other methods that you might find in some congregations. But having said that, the language the Bible uses here includes just more than the ceremony that we celebrate together. Think of some other ways that Scripture uses baptism. John the Baptist had said to his followers, I baptized you with water, But someone is coming after me who will do what? Baptize you in what? In the Holy Spirit. You'll also remember that when James and John, with a little prompting by their mom, came to Jesus one day and said, uh, you know, we'd like to have those two good places in your kingdom, one at your right hand and one at your left. And Jesus responds to them by asking, Do you think you're really willing to be baptized in the baptism I'm about to experience? Which is another way of saying, are you really ready to jump in and be immersed in what it is that I'm about to go through? So, when the Bible uses this term baptism, it's much wider than a ceremony. It's talking about jumping in, being immersed, soaking in an experience. So when Jesus tells his disciples, as they continue to follow him and invite others to come and follow him, to baptize them, it is more than just this rite that he had in mind, as significant as that is. He is also telling them about how to go about the process of inviting people to come. Baptize them, he says. Immerse them. But immerse them in what? What? The text goes on and says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember that in Scripture, someone's name is not just what someone is called, but it's often also used to describe something significant about their character or to express something about who they really are at their core, at their deepest level. That's why we sometimes find people's names in Scripture changing. Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. After a long night of struggle, Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Israel, the one who struggles with God and prevails, who is blessed. And later when you find Jesus in John 17, 6, praying to his father, I have revealed your name to them. He is talking about how, through his life and ministry, people have been able to really see who God is. They have seen what God is like. They now know what makes God tick at the very core of his being because he had revealed his name to them. It was as he told the disciples in John 14, 9, When you have seen me, you have seen the Father that was revealing God's name to them. That picture of God, God's name, is what the disciples had been immersed in during that three, three and a half years that they followed Jesus. And now as they continued to follow, Jesus tells them to do the same with those they were inviting to join them. Immerse them, he says, not only symbolically in a pool of water, but in a community of people who by continuing to follow Jesus are seeking to reflect and embody that name in the way that they live, that same loving presence in the world. Uh, Dallas Willard, when he talks about this, says that the best way to get people into the kingdom is to get the kingdom into people. That's how it's done. Well, how do you describe a community like this? Well, the Bible does use a number of different images in lots of different places to talk about what this looks like. It talks about living stones and spiritual temples. It talks about body parts coming together to form a body. But the image that this passage invokes, if we are willing to listen to it carefully, I think is the one that may say it the best of any of them. Baptizing them, Jesus says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear the language of family here? Jesus might just as easily have said, baptize them in my name, as he had told his disciples many times before to pray. He told them to pray in his name. But here, instead, it is the language of the Trinity that is used. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit which expresses God's loving, gracious character, God's name, in a very uniquely relational way. Now, without getting all sidetracked by all kinds of conversations about how God can be one and three all at the same time, and, you know, all the things we go through to try to explain that, what is worth noticing here about this language of the Trinity is that the main idea is that God is, by nature, relational. Relational. God is relational. And that is predominantly, and it is predominantly family language, not the language of business, not the language of management, not the language of marketing, or productivity, or speed, or efficiency, but the language of family that is used to describe what God is all about. And so when God creates beings in his own image, he creates them. He creates them and places them in a relational context. Remember Genesis pointing out that it's not good for man to be alone, for people to be alone. That's not what we were created for, and it's not the way that we can reflect God's image. In order to fully reflect the image of God, we need to be in relationships with people, with the community around us. And that primary relational context we are placed in, whether it's at the moment of creation, back in Eden, or whether it's how we emerge into our own families through birth, that context is the context of a family. Where we get into trouble is when other models or metaphors take the lead, ones that lead us to build great houses, but don't do so well when it comes to building homes. You know, we live today in a world where technology has given us the ability to produce more stuff in shorter periods of time, with less personal investment than ever before, and we have come to see this as progress, when in reality what we've done is disconnect what we have learned and produce from the relationships that used to be the way that that information was shared and the things were made. So we have a way of living that pushes quantity over quality, that pushes knowledge over, vision, over wisdom, and we wind up producing smart, productive, lonely people who have no identity apart from what they know or what they produce. In a world like that, family becomes the metaphor that helps pull us back from that path and redirect our steps home again. For building homes the metaphor or image that best captures what it means to live together as God's people, created in the image of a loving and relational God, however imperfectly it might manifest itself at times, is that of family. But you know, as soon as we say that, there are those who would understandably object. What about all those people who don't really have families? What about people who are single? What about those families who, for whatever reason, if you were to be immersed there, you might not come away feeling like it was love and grace that you had been soaking in? Jesus has a very interesting conversation that takes place one day when he's teaching. While he's talking, his disciples interrupt him in what he's saying to tell him that uh, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. What I want you to notice is the way that Jesus responds to the interruption. Here's what he says. This is found in Matthew 12, 48, by the way. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Or to put it another way, Jesus asks, so how do you define family? And then verse 49, pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and as my brother and my sister and my mother. And I don't think Jesus said this in order to diminish the significance of the biological ties that we feel together and that we experience together. Those are incredibly important. But rather to ensure us that in his kingdom, no matter how imperfect or how flawed or how difficult our own family situations might be, the experience of being family and knowing what it is to be at home does not have to be limited to them. Well, that's not to say that we always get it right either when we're together as a church family, even when we are working with the right metaphor. There are plenty of times that we fall short of that and that we fail to be family for each other. But the Bible is clear that families do struggle at times, whether they're individual families or church families. But even that only serves to strengthen the metaphor. Remember that Jesus told the story of a loving father one day and a wayward son, a story that reminds us that even in good situations, even in the best of of situations in families, things can sometimes go sideways on us in ways that we hadn't anticipated. But even more importantly, with family as the dominant metaphor in that story, it also shows us what to do when that does happen. It's a story that models for us a community of grace, even as it challenges the, other, the elder brothers among us and the elder brother within us, not to too quickly sell the metaphor short to stay with the metaphor. See, for all of its issues and challenges, family is still the setting that Jesus invites us into when he invites us into the kingdom. He invites us by being family together to immerse those that we invite into the way that God really is. Invites us to address a longing that... we all sense for a place like that, for a church like that, one about which we might very well find ourselves saying, you know, there really is no place like home. It's in that context then, having invited the disciples to immerse people in a realization of who God really is, and in being a family that really seeks to embody and reflect that, That we are now able to read the rest of verse 20 in the Great Commission, where Jesus goes on to say, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. It is really only in the context of that kind of community, that kind of family, that the teaching of Jesus will be rightly understood and where it can really make sense. And then Jesus goes on to say, And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. It's in the midst of that community that Jesus invites his followers into and invites us to invite others into that Jesus assures us that he will be present to the very end of things. Exactly what it means to be that kind of family together is what we're going to be exploring for the next several Sabbaths as we pause and take a look at family. And in case there are some of you who may feel a little like Dorothy, you know, that we just don't feel like we're in Kansas anymore, while I don't have any magical ruby slippers to offer you this morning, there are some people in Scripture that uh, have maybe offered something that will work as well. Isaiah and Nahum And Ephesians, Paul and Ephesians, all agree and suggest something that sounds like feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, which may be when that metaphor is taken seriously, when we stay focused on the good news in the midst of a family where we can understand it, we may not only discover that there is no place like home, we might even get there. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful this morning that we are assured that indeed you do reign in heaven as our Father, as the God who calls us into community with each other, as members of your family. We pray that uh, as we put the gospel of peace as shoes upon our feet, as we continue to walk across the room to connect with others, That it might be your family, not just a name but an experience, that we bring with us as we do so and that we draw them into as we share. That's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name.